Welcome to Dealmaker Diaries, where you hear directly from the dealmakers who you invest with. M&A, real estate syndication, and more. Strap in for unparalleled advice, wisdom, and insight from some of the world's best business minds with Don Thomas and G1C Group. Hey guys, welcome back to season two of Dealmaker Diaries. And as a special treat, we're happy to welcome Mike Alphant back to the show. He was actually our first ep- our first guest on the first episode. So um, just to give you some background again, um, Mike is the chairman and CEO at Fusion Systems and chairman and CEO at Bifinity AG. And he's delving into his, his experiences leading in Japan. So Mike previously held the position of vice president for the Tokyo American Chamber of Commerce and president as well, and also president of Tokyo American Club. In addition to this, he's also on the board of Newport, Persona Tequila, and Helios KK, and has also advised at Stanford University and lectured at Keio Business School, Kyoto University, and Temple University. Mike's wide range of experiences clearly shows that he is a true leader in the fintech industry of Japan. Mike originally grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and worked on Wall Street for roughly 10 years in the technical side of investment banking with his computer science background. He became fascinated with Japan after a business trip prompting him to move to Tokyo to start his first company, Fusion Systems. Mike leads excellent advice for those who wish to successfully lead in Japan. He also advises newcomers to limit the scope of your vision and goals and focus on achieving one or two business goals. Secondly, he advises people to have thick skin and accept that Japan is a unique culture that will not easily change. Lastly, Mr. Alphan advises people to explore the beautiful places in Japan as the real Japan is not Tokyo. The real Japan is outside. All right, so let's give Mike Alphan a warm welcome back to the show. Let's go. So, hey, Mike, welcome back to the show. How are you? Thank you, Donald. I'm doing very, very well. Thank you for asking. How about yourself? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. I can't complain at all. So yeah, if if many of the guests don't remember, you were actually my first guest on our inaugural podcast. So it's um, been 24 episodes. So it's great to have you back for the 25th. Thank you. It's an honor and I do appreciate it. Uh, Hopefully we'll have an interesting and productive chat and uh, lay it on me. Hit me with whatever questions you like. All right, great, great. So yeah, today I wanted to dig in a little more about um, how someone might want to scale and grow a small business. Okay. So let's say um, let's say you've just launched a small business or just completed an acquisition of one, and you're looking to scale, but have very little capital. Mm. So in your opinion, what is one of the most efficient ways to scale without a lot of capital? Right. Interesting question. Well, I mean, essentially, Donald, when you're trying to scale an existing business, you are trading off short-term cash flow against long-term growth. 
and that cash flow can come from a number of sources. Um, you can take some of your existing margin, your net contribution margin from business activities and reinvest that into growth. Uh, you can find some alternative means of financing the growth, maybe through uh, debt. Bank debt is a typical thing. Uh, but those are sort of vanilla approaches. I think there are some interesting things we can do as venture entrepreneurs, as risk takers, as small business people. And one of the things I like to do is bring my employees into the equation and see if they're willing to take on a bit of risk in return for a bit of upside. So for instance, you might think about going to your existing employees and saying something like, listen, guys, I want to grow the business and I need capital. I don't have access to it. How about if uh, you guys take a 20% pay cut for six months and in return, I give you guys 10% of the business and I'll give you transparency into how that 20% gets spent in the interest of growing the business for all our benefits. So something like that is an interesting approach to it. But essentially yeah, what, what you're doing, Don, is you're saying, I need more capital than I have. And I have multiple mechanisms to get my hands on that capital. What I need to do is balance risk, return, transparency, uh, and my own time, because your own time is the most valuable asset the company has. And so if you're running around trying to raise a few hundred or a few thousand or a few hundred thousand dollars to grow, but at the same time, you're not doing business development, you're not recruiting, you're not strategizing, you're not fully engaged in building the business, then essentially you're treading water. So I think there's a lot of dimensions to this particular problem. Uh, some businesses don't lend themselves to fundraising from external sources, meaning venture capital or banks for a variety of reasons. And so another mechanism I've used in the past is my clients. And so I'll sometimes go to existing clients and explain what I'm trying to do, why I'm trying to do it, and ask them if they would be willing to prepay some of their anticipated spend with us. So again, maybe say, hey, look, guys, in the next year, if you keep up the current pace, you're going to do $10,000 in business with us. How about if we cut that and give, it, give you that $10,000 in business for $8,000, but you give me the $8,000 today? Because the time value of that money is greater to me than it is to you. So our interests are aligned. If I get bigger, quicker, I can do more for you. I can deliver more value. And this is a way for you to cut your spend on something you already intend to buy. And so any sort of thought process like that, Don, is a way for bootstrap entrepreneurs, bootstrap venture people to think about scaling their business, getting their hands on the capital that will allow them to expedite scaling. Now, of course, at the end of the day, you could just be patient and take your time in scaling and let the business grow on its own equilibrium. 
and not take on any of that additional risk. Because essentially, by pulling that revenue forward, you're taking future risk. You're still delivering $10,000 worth of services or product, but you're only getting paid $8,000 for it. However, you're getting paid $8,000 today. So essentially, you're taking $2,000 in risk to expedite that cash that will allow you to grow. What do you think of that? Yeah, that's actually very interesting. I mean, especially the second one. I like that one. I mean, the the first one is good as well, but I really like that second one because I think, I mean, so going back to that first one, what do you think are the drawbacks to giving employees um, equity in the company using that? Are there any drawbacks that would discourage you from doing that? Sure. I mean, first of all, there's no such thing as a free lunch. So no matter what you do, there are some consequences Uh, that you need to be mindful of. I think in this case, you've got to be really sure that these are employees that you trust, um, that you can grow with, that have an affinity for yourself and your firm, because you're essentially saying they're your new business partners. And that's a big decision for both parties to make. As well, I think there's risk in terms of misunderstanding. Uh, And so clarifying exactly what it means to own some shares in a company is important. Not everyone understands what that really means. Uh, In some jurisdictions, for instance, we're right now in Tokyo, the two of us, Uh, there are certain minority shareholder rights which increase as the shareholding increases above certain thresholds. So the typical thing people will point at are thresholds like 5%, 20%, 33% in the Japanese commercial code, which imply things like information rights um, or veto rights on certain corporate actions as those numbers scale up. So yeah, there there are definitely considerations there, Don. Uh, No such thing as a free lunch. We need to be mindful of those considerations and price that into our risk calculation, uh, both mentally and I think emotionally. Because for some of us, owning 100% of a business is important. And as soon as we become uh, non-100% owners, even if it's 95% or 99%, we have some other considerations in terms of transparency and access to information that not everyone is comfortable with. So yeah, absolutely, there are some drawbacks uh, for some of these schemes and mechanisms, and it's incumbent upon us as founders, CEOs, business owners, entrepreneurs, to make a prudent risk reward calculation and then execute against that. Okay, very good. Thanks for that, thanks, Mike. Sure. Okay, and. Um... Another thing that I've come up against, um, and I'm sure many others as well, is managing staff remotely. So whether that be working from home or in another city, state, or even country. So how how did you achieve the best results when managing staff remotely? Yeah, that's a tough one. And it's interesting, obviously, with COVID uh, and some of the restrictions on travel and um, physical presence and social distancing that we're we're all obeying right now, 
it's become uh, a critical consideration for us. I used to say to people, if you would ask me that question three years ago, my answer would have been, I don't do remote. I don't manage people remotely because I've had uniformly bad results with it. Uh, but I think the silver lining, if you could call it that, to some of these COVID restrictions is that I and, and other people have been forced to become better at remote interaction with employees, business partners, vendors, clients, et cetera. And so one of the things I've learned really is that remote micromanagement is not the way to go. I think there's a predisposition when you're not seeing someone in the office every day to get a little bit anxious about understanding how that person is spending the time that is purportedly being paid for by yourself and by the company. But I've found that not to be a productive approach. What I found to be much more productive is essentially focusing on the work product, focusing on deliverables, uh, and really aligning expectations around both the quality of the deliverables and the time frame at which those deliverables are expected with interim checkpoints along the way so that we can refine the work product and the deliverables before we get to a point of no return. Uh, and so essentially, maybe counterintuitively, what I found is being a bit less hands-on as a manager has served me well in terms of remote management and investing more time upfront in aligning expectations around deliverables, timeframes for deliverables, and especially for quality of work product is how I've seen uh, my ability to manage remotely increase over the last 18 to 24 months. At the end of the day, I think you know, we're seeing a lot of new tools come online. Uh, we're seeing people become more comfortable with this paradigm. And I think it is something that will be with us for forever. It may take various forms, but I think we all need to increase our ability to manage remotely, work remotely, and have an open mind about the mechanisms under which we execute. And I really think it's not a one-size-fits-all situation. So in my personal case, for example, what I found is software developers are pretty good at working remotely and collaborating remotely. And so I, I think this paradigm suits that particular discipline very well. At the same time, it's very challenging to onboard new team members and integrate new people into the business, generally speaking, because many of the social mechanisms we've used in the past to do so are less available to us or more costly to us. And so all of those lunches and after work drinking sessions and chit chats around the water cooler um, and walking to the subway together and exchanging views, those have become much more difficult and expensive 
to execute. Uh, and those were, at least in my case, one of the ways I really understood what was happening in the firm and got a pulse, a pulse check from the employees and uh, the partners in the firm of what was really going on, what were they thinking about, what were their concerns. And so I think replacing that social interaction is the more challenging aspect for me. The, the nuts and bolts, the blocking and tackling, there's a lot of different project management frameworks we can utilize or retrofit into the remote work paradigm and make them suitable. But the thing I've been struggling with and the thing I think I'll continue to struggle with is how do I replace that casual social interaction amongst and between the various stakeholders and members of the firm, which I found to be very beneficial historically and is now much more difficult to execute. So I guess the answer to your question is I've learned a lot and I still feel I have a lot to learn in this specific instance. Okay, yeah, and I mean, and even pre-COVID, I mean, I guess a lot of this would still apply as far as managing your workforce. So say for instance, like you're here in Tokyo and you're, you're opening up a branch in Hong Kong or Singapore, I guess pretty much those same principles could apply, right? I think so, yeah, I, I believe so. I mean, I, I have, Although I'm in Tokyo, as you know, we have offices in Shanghai, Hong Kong, Sydney, and Los Angeles. And what I would do is essentially make sure that I hit every one of those offices at least twice a year for a physical visit. And so that was, in a way, a lazy approach for me to catch up on everything that I might have been missing remotely. So I knew if I was going to turn up in the Hong Kong office for a week or 10 days and have an individual lunch with every employee and have a company outing and do a couple of dinners with clients, eventually I'd get my hands on all the information that I had maybe been too lazy to procure remotely or um, too poor of a manager to pick up on from the subtleties of various deliverables and meetings and emails. But now I don't even have that. It's the overhead to travel. As you know, you just came back and you're spending 14 days essentially quarantined. Uh, if you're going right. to do two or three business trips a quarter, you can't afford to spend 14 days quarantined after every one of those business trips uh, because you'll either be traveling or in quarantine 100% of your time. So I think even if I rewind the clock pre-COVID, I'm still getting better at managing remotely because I don't have the, the safety net of physically moving myself to one of those remote locations and relying on social interaction and face-to-face -face meetings to catch up on everything. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, that 14-day that quarantine is a killer because I was thinking, I mean, just think if you're doing even if you're doing six business trips a year and you have to do six 14-day quarantines, I mean, you just, you got to consider that's what, three months exactly in quarantine. <laughs> right, right. You spend half your life so, in quarantine. It's not very productive. Yeah, so hopefully that'll lighten up soon because yeah, I don't see any way they're going to make that work. You're doing a lot of travel. Yeah, yep.
I agree. All right, so let's let's switch gears a little bit and talk about focus. So sure. when you have things coming at you from all directions, so you're hiring staff, you have budget, expenses, marketing, advertising, taxes, bookkeeping, people coming at you with services that your business apparently needs and so on. How do you stay focused and keep your eye on what's most important? Right. That's that's a great question. I, I'm a big believer in compartmentalization. And so I think in my case, what I tend to focus on is what I call an achievement orientation. By that, I mean, I don't like to have multiple outstanding tasks that are partially done. Once I start something, I tend to like to complete it. And so I'd rather have one completed task and five pending tasks than have six things I'm working on, but are only 50% done for each task. So that's number one. Number two is I think it's important not to micromanage. So you've got resources, you've got people, and you've got to trust them to make some business decisions for you. And so I think setting parameters around those business decisions and establishing a hierarchy of priorities is very, very important. So in my case, what I explain to every employee, but especially the managers, is that we have four primary stakeholders in the firm. And in order of priority, they are our clients, our shareholders, our employees, and our management. So in Japanese, we say, customer is a God. So our customers are our first priority. After that comes our shareholders, which is actually a little bit reversed from what we learned in the West. When we go to business school in the West, as a CEO, we learn, hey, your job is to generate value for your shareholders. One of the lessons I've learned in Asia over the last 30 years is my primary focus is on my clients, then my shareholders, then my employees, and then finally my management team, which is myself and the rest of the team. And so what I try to institutionalize in every decision-making opportunity in the firm is a very simple analysis whereby I will never second guess an employee or a manager if they can articulate their thought process in making a decision. And that thought process is focused, number one, on our clients, number two, on our shareholders, number three, on our employees, and number four, on the management team. So if they can say to me, look, Mike, I made this decision, I bought this software, I hired this person, I did whatever it is I did because in my judgment and for the following reasons, this is what was best for our clients, I will never second guess them, even if I disagree. Now, what I might do is introduce additional considerations for the next decision-making opportunity that they might come across. But to come full circle to your question, Don, 
I think there are too many things that come at you too quickly as an entrepreneur, as a CEO, as a founder. And if you don't compartmentalize, if you don't delegate, what you will find is that you don't have any time to, number one, really do your best as a CEO. And number two, to invest in yourself in terms of self-improvement and keeping yourself healthy and motivated. Because again, your time is the most significant asset the firm has. So that's how I kind of look at it from a mindfulness and prioritization perspective, compartmentalize and delegate, but do so in a way that's consistent and transparent so that it becomes part of the corporate culture over time and correct decisions tend to follow, or at least correct as defined as everyone doing what I would do in a similar set of circumstances, everyone in the firm doing what I would do or what I would want them to do. Does that make sense? Absolutely, absolutely. Some great, great tidbits in there. Thanks so much for that. Sure. All right, and to piggyback on that, how important is it to get it right when hiring staff? Yeah, that's the key. I, I, I think you nailed it. Um, if I look back on the mistakes I've made, and I've made and continue to make many, many mistakes as an entrepreneur, the vast majority of them tend to have as a root cause a bad hiring decision. And I believe that takes many forms. But to me, the most common mistake I've made is hiring for expertise versus hiring for character. So at the end of the day, by the time someone's coming to my door looking for a job, I cannot teach them to be a good person. I cannot teach them to have good character and good values. That's something they either have or they don't have uh, from their upbringing, from their family, their parents, their education, their peer group, et cetera. I can teach them a lot of skills and I can augment those skills with existing employees, but I can't teach them honor, integrity, loyalty, discipline, the core values that I try to live by. And the times I've made mistakes around HR and hiring are the times I've compromised those character considerations in favor of a tactical requirement for expertise. And I've almost always regretted those decisions. So over time, what I've learned is we're really trying to find good people and we can teach them what it is we need them to know via training, and on the job training and formal training and, and tasking and experiential opportunities, et cetera. But I can't teach them to be good people. They come to the door with that one way or the other. And so what I tend to do during the recruiting process is focus very heavily on whether or not someone fits our corporate culture, not whether or not they have the requisite tactical expertise to contribute day one. Okay. All right. Good stuff. Good stuff. And you touched on this before, Mike, but um, 
I want to try to get a little deeper. So what strategies or advice would you recommend to keep from being dragged into working in your business rather than on your business? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We've talked about this before. Uh, and it is one of the common failings of entrepreneurs is we all tend to be problem solvers. And so we're perversely attracted to problems within our own business. And we tend to lose sight of the fact that one of the most profligate things we can expend corporate resources on, especially strategic corporate resources, are tactical considerations or tactical problems. And what I found over the years is that, number one, you've gone to great trouble to hire good people, work with them, train them, expose them to your way of thinking uh, and your client's way of thinking. And sometimes you just got to trust them to solve problems, to work in the business. And again, this goes back to delegation. But I think it's important also not to see yourself as a problem solver. Your job is strategy. It's driving business, developing business, uh, recruiting good people, being visible in your community, uh, growing your own capability, challenging yourself. Your job is not fixing problems or addressing tactical issues. That's not the job of the CEO. And so sometimes I think the analogy is if you're the captain of the ship and it's you want it to be a big, fast, sleek, beautiful ship that's cruising the ocean. When somebody calls from way, way, way down in the engine room and says, hey, captain, uh, I see a little water leaking in from somewhere down here. The worst thing you could do is walk away from the tiller and spend all that time going down and looking for that leak and trying to plug it because mm. you're no longer steering the ship and you're no longer on the bridge. You're down searching around through pipes and uh, back alleys of the ship looking for that little leak. And I think the right thing to do is tell that person, yep, I hope you find that leak. Good luck with that. And let me know if it gets any worse. And then get off that intercom system and go back to steering the ship. So I think it's a challenge in terms of mindfulness. I think it's a challenge in terms of personal growth, where you understand your core value to the firm is not problem solving. It's setting strategic direction and doing all those other things that we talked about earlier, going and talking to clients, finding new opportunities, keeping yourself abreast of industry developments, regulatory developments, technology developments, all the good stuff that are, that's really going to drive enterprise value and strategic value and not crawling around in the bowels of the ship looking for uh, a leaky faucet or a leaky pipe. Okay, excellent, good stuff. And a couple of more questions, Mike. So I wanted to talk also about um, mindset. So every day, of course, isn't going to be great, regardless of <laughs> how positive you are and how great your mindset is, right? So how do you stay motivated with all the noise out there in the world? 
I think it's important to understand that, number one, the only thing you ultimately have control over is yourself and your own actions and your own words. So there's, as you say, a lot going on all the time. Essentially, the vast majority of that is external. It's an externality. There's nothing you can do about it. So if it rains, it's going to rain. And all of the frustration and praying and wishing and hoping that it doesn't rain or stops raining doesn't make a difference at the end of the day. So I'd say number one is understand what you have control over is yourself and your actions and your words, period, full stop. That's really important. I think another thing to understand is that as frustrating as things may be, everyone else out there has good intentions. I'm a strong believer that people are doing what they sincerely believe to be the right thing to do. Even if it's not consistent with what you want them to do, or it's orthogonal to what you've asked them to do, or it's completely daft in your estimation, I think it's important to understand and to sincerely believe that they're doing it because they think it's the best thing to do. They have good intentions. And so becoming frustrated or upset or angry does not benefit anyone. It doesn't really help. Another thing I'm constantly thinking about, and we've talked about this before, is it's a lot like baseball. There's another game tomorrow. And so if today we lost and we're sitting here saying, boy, the umpire made a bad call or the wind um, blew the ball out of our reach or the ball took a bad hop or somebody hit a lucky home run, whatever it is, it is, it's done, it's over. Focus on the game tomorrow. The good thing for us as entrepreneurs is there's another game tomorrow. And so we've got to do our best to forget about what's happened learn whatever lessons we're going to learn from what happened and apply those lessons to tomorrow's game and win that game. That's really important. And I think the last thing I would say is from a leadership perspective, everyone in and around the firm takes their cue from you. So if they see that you're getting frustrated, if you're getting upset, if you're getting impatient, then they will do likewise. If, on the other hand, they see that you're maintaining a positive outlook, that you're confident, that you're forthright, that you're looking forward to tomorrow's game, then they will, again, take their cue from you and do that. So I think it's incumbent upon us, on each of us, to essentially embody the ideals of heroic leadership. And part of that is never giving up. No matter how grim things look, no matter how confused the battlefield is, no matter how much smoke is blowing over the field and we can't see two feet in front of us, 
we are the leaders, we're the generals, everyone's looking to us and they will emulate us and follow us. And so in some way, I would say being a good entrepreneurial leader, you need to understand that sometimes you're operating based on irrational confidence, not on logical analysis. You just have to understand that it's do or die. If you turn around and run off the battlefield, the battle is over. Even if you can't see what's going on and you don't know where everyone is, you've got to move forward in the face of what may seem insurmountable odds um, against very strong opposition. You still need to take that mindset of I am the leader and I am a heroic leader. I will lead. I will be the first one charging against these monsters and unknown forces and we will vanquish them. And the, the trick I play in my mind <laughs> to trick myself is I play music in my own head. I try to think of songs that inspire me, um, that appeal to me, where either the lyrics or the chords or, or just the overall tenor of the music is energizing for me. And depending on the situation, I try to think of the ideal song and just put that on an infinite loop in my head while the battle is, is ongoing. Uh, and that's drowning out the noise and the negativity and the anxiety and the fear and everything else. I'm just motivated, focused, driven, and all I hear are these songs that I like and that I find inspirational. So it's kind of a weird trick. <laughs> and I don't know if anyone else does that, but I do it and it works well for me. Yeah, that's a good one. And I guess that says something for you. you see the athletes coming into the games with those headphones on. I mean, that's, that's exactly what they're doing, except they're just not doing it in their head, right? Yep, yep, yep. I think I'm, I'm of a generation that predates headphones. And so I can play that same music in my head without <laughs> headphones. It works fine. Okay, excellent. Good stuff. All right, and last one, Mike. So in the, in the scheme of leadership, as you were just talking about, so um, as leaders and CEOs and entrepreneurs, what what should one be paying most attention to in, in the scheme of political and regulatory headwinds, if anything at all? I, I think there are... <sighs> Again, it's an externality, Donald. Um, what I have found, I've been in political leadership positions before, as well as business leadership positions. They're very different uh, animals, and they need to be approached very differently. But speaking as a business person, as an entrepreneur, especially as a small business person, as frustrating as politics and regulation can be, I think it behooves us to repurpose our energy and our diligence towards finding one more customer. That will have a bigger difference on the ultimate fortunes of our business than agonizing over politics and regulation. Now, of course, 
we all have advisors, whether they're lawyers or accountants, whose job it is to really stay on top of regulatory developments. And I trust them to give us good advice in those areas. But you know, a long time ago, when I opened up our office in Shanghai, it was about 16 years ago. And one of my friends who was the CEO of a very large company, they were opening up in China at the same time. And uh, we were having dinner in Shanghai. And he said to me, Mike, how are you pricing political risk into your cost benefit analysis in terms of opening and growing your China operation? And I just looked at him and said, I'm ignoring political risk uh, because it's something I can't quantify and I can't control and it's a complete externality. And I remember he just looked at me and he said, it must be nice to be an entrepreneur where you can do those sorts of things. Uh, <laughs> in my world as a CEO of a large company, I've got to go to the board and show them that I've really quantified and try to ensure in various ways against that political risk. So in some ways I view one of the luxuries of being an entrepreneur as saying, I'm not gonna worry about that stuff. Instead, I'm gonna repurpose all of that energy and mindshare into finding one more client. Because ultimately that client, the revenue, the notoriety, uh, the domain expertise we will gain from properly executing against that client's requirements will benefit myself, my firm, my team, my enterprise much more than agonizing over political risk that I can't understand and can't quantify. So I guess that's a short way of, or a long way of saying, I just ignore it at this point in my life. Politics is politics. It's just like the weather to me. It's out there, it happens. Whether I agree or disagree, I have no influence over it. And I'm going to go find another client instead. Okay. So, yeah, just keep your head down and focus on growing the business, getting new customers and whatnot, right? Yeah, that's a good way to say it. That's a much more concise way to phrase it than I just did. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Great. All right, Mike. So let's jump into um, lightning round before I let you hop off. Sure. Well, I'll start off with a few softballs and then get a little deeper on you. <laughs> <laughs> so what um what are two things you would put on your bucket list that you haven't done yet? Number one is I'd like to attend the Super Bowl one day. Okay. And number two is I want to hike the Appalachian Trail. Which runs now, where is the Appalachian? Where is that? Where is that? It Appalachian goes from Trail? Georgia up to Maine or from Maine down to Georgia, depending on which perspective you're looking at it from. And so that's, okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting, it, it appeals to me for many reasons. And so I'd say those two things for now. Okay. All right, and how many books have you read so far this year? Uh, what month are we in? We're in August, so I do one a week. Uh, so what have we sent, about 30 or so? Okay. So my budget is one book a week. That's come what may, I will finish one book a week. And I've been doing that for many, many years. Okay. Yeah, I had said 48 for this year, but I'm way behind. I think I'm only at like 
25 right now, so I, I, didn't, I need to pick it up. Playing catch-up. Okay. Yep. All right. So what is one thing people don't know about investing in a business? What they don't know is that a very, very uh, important aspect of investment is diversification. So my experience is people tend to put too many eggs in one basket, whether it's their own basket or their friend's baskets or uh, third-party uh, investment manager's baskets. But I think the single most important investment we can make in life is investing in ourselves. And so what I tend to do when I'm investing, and I assume the question's about investing capital or time in a business is right, yes. make sure I'm not overweight in that specific investment or business opportunity. So get rid of the fear of missing out. I think people tend okay. to think, wow, if this thing turns into Google, every dollar I invest is going to be worth $100 million. I better put all my money into it. But I think a, a better way to think about it is this is one of the dozens or hundreds of investments I'll make in my lifetime. And on balance, I believe that I'm making prudent business decisions and prudent investments, and some of them will bear fruit. So I think that, <clears throat> that tends to be where people go wrong in investing, in my experience. Okay, great. And Mike, have you ever tried to do something and you knew that you were going to be really bad at it, but you did it anyway? Yes. And what was it? It was trying to play the cello. Um, <laughs> I, I tried <laughs> to learn how to play the cello and that didn't go well. And it, it, the, I, I, I didn't realize the cello was one of the hardest instruments to learn how to play. Um, and I was able to make it make some sounds. But as the cello teacher told me, she had never heard those sounds produced before and hoped to never hear them again. And so I was, I was not a very good musician or cellist. And I probably chose unwisely in choosing an instrument that's um, little did I know is apparently one of the most difficult instruments to learn how to play. I would have been much better off with a triangle or a drum or something like that. Uh, but I knew it would be tough and I tried it anyway and it didn't work. Uh, and I, I gave it a couple of years and probably spent too much money on it. Uh, and then in the end, at the advice of my teacher, did not pursue it any further. <laughs> but you were the better for trying. I think so. And I think it's important to learn how to lose gracefully and understand that as confident as you may be, uh, there are many things that many other people are much better than you at and will continue to be better at you, uh, better than you at. Uh, and in fact, you may never even get to basic proficiency, no matter how hard you try. 
but I do think it's important um, from a humility and a level setting standpoint to give it a shot if you feel it's worth giving it a shot. And something possessed me. I don't know what it was, but I thought I, I really, I, I think cello music is beautiful and evocative and I want to be able to do it. Uh, and in the end, I am not able to do it, uh, but it's not for lack of trying. Yeah, definitely. All right. And um, so, Mike, halfway through 2021, what new technology do you think will transform the future? I think it's a combination of three or four things, Donald. It's not one technology. It's convergence of uh, deep learning, regenerative medicine, and nanotechnology. I think those, those three things are what will transform the future for all of us by essentially empowering humans to be and to do much more than we've ever been or ever been able to do historically. And I can't put an exact time frame on it, but I think within the next one to two decades, you and I will see things that we never imagined. And our children will experience things that are, are wondrous because of that convergence of AI or deep learning, uh, regenerative medicine and nanotechnology. So that's what I'm really, really focused on. And if you ask me to throw a wild card into the mix, I would say quantum computing would be the wild card in there, which could potentially accelerate the other three very, very dramatically. Okay, very cool. So I guess I should start looking at those types of companies to um, invest a little in. Yeah, if you find any good not overweight. <laughs> All right, we'll do. All right, and last one, Mike. I saved the deepest one for last. Okay. So what is the one truth, the one truth that very few people agree with you on? That you must value the truth. So I think it was Churchill who said, the truth is so valuable and so important that it is accompanied by a bodyguard of lies. And I believe in the current age of information overload, I strongly believe that the truth in and of itself is so valuable that it transcends all of the misinformation and noise around us. And it's very difficult to ascertain the truth but I keep referring to that Churchill quote of the most important thing in the world is the truth. And it's so important. And I, I'm paraphrasing that it is usually accompanied by a bodyguard or a phalanx of lies. And so it's that search for truth, Donald. It's, I, I just feel like it's self-evidently the mission of each of us as a learning creature, humans are put on this planet to learn, to contribute, 
uh, to be part of a community and to ultimately be part of something greater than ourselves. And we only do that by acknowledging and pursuing the truth. So that's kind of my deep philosophical answer uh, or pop psychology answer, maybe pop philosophy answer to that question is just follow wherever the truth leads you, whether that's popular or in fashion or not, and understand that the truth is so valuable that it's worth your investment in time and energy and money and resources to really get to the truth about everything. And I, I suppose the corollary to that is never lie to yourself. <laughs> Be brutally honest with yourself. Because that truth is really what enables personal growth for all of us. Wow, great answer. That's the best answer I've had to that question so far. I've been using that for a few weeks. So okay, awesome. all right. I'm glad to hear it. It's good. I love these these um, lightning round questions. It's, it's good stuff, Donald. Thank you. Uh, thank you. And thanks, thanks so much for um, hopping on with me today, Mike. I really appreciate it. And, and really quickly, um, for the very few people who don't know who Mike is and how to get in touch with him, what's the best way to get in touch with you if somebody wanted to reach out? It's just email me. It's uh, My email address is mike.alfant at gmail.com. And so it's just my first name, dot my last name at gmail.com. And I'm happy to uh, be in touch with anyone. Just give me a few days to respond because uh, I'm not an email junkie, but I do check my email every day or every other day. And I do try to respond very, very uh, quickly to emails that come in. All right, awesome, awesome. All right, again, so yeah, thanks for hopping on, Mike. I know you're quite busy, so we really appreciate you taking the time out to um, share some of your thoughts and perspective with us. Always a pleasure, Donald, thank you. All right, Mike, and um, I hope to see you soon when I'm off quarantine. Okay, as soon as you're out, buddy, let me know and we'll get together. All right, definitely. All right, take care, Mike. Have, enjoy the rest of your day. You got it. Hang in there. Later. All right, bye. There you have it, guys. Another episode of Dealmaker Diaries in the books. If you enjoy and or find value in what we're doing, please do leave us a nice review. It goes a long way in keeping the show moving in the right direction. For you investors, if you're looking for places to put your hard-earned capital to work, head on over to our website, g1cgrp.com, and sign up for our investor list to be informed of the different projects we're raising capital for that will provide you with the cash flow your investments so much deserves.